the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD, coming at you on AM860, The Answer. And you can reach me through my website at drbillradiomd.com. Click listen live, or you can go to our station, am860theanswer.com, and click listen live. We're also on iHeart Station. We're interactive, by the way, and you can call from anywhere in the United States, Canada, Puerto Rico, wherever, 877-969-8600. That's 877-969-8600. Got a Pretty good show going on today. We got Dr. Ken Red Cross, who's going to talk about the flu and how to have a better relationship with your doctor. And also, after the break, we'll talk a little bit about the uh, late term abortion debate that's been stirred up again by Governor Northam in Virginia. This guy seems to be getting himself into all kinds of trouble. Oh, my goodness. Well, Ken, welcome to the show again. How you been? Hey, hey, good morning, Dr. Bill. How are you? I'm good, man. Never better. Oh, beautiful to hear. It's wonderful to be here with you today. It's been way too long. Yeah, it's been almost a year. I know. Time flies, I guess, when you're having fun. And when you're growing older, too. By the way, I had my 70th birthday on Friday, so you got to wish oh, me happy God. birthday. Oh, happy belated birthday. I wish I knew I would have given you a call. Hopefully you did something good with it. I did. I had the flu. I had the gastroenteritis and stayed home and sat on the toilet all day. (laughs) Oh, no, you should have called me. We can figure out much better ways to spend your birthday. That's for sure. Absolutely. So what have you been up to? You still have your uh, concierge medical practice? I do. I do, Bill. So I've been like kind of just running around a little bit all over the U.S., hopefully changing and touching lives and, and making everyone healthy and whole. So I've been staying quite busy, actually, on the concierge side as well. Good. How's your book doing? I'm also doing very well. You know, it's interesting. I, I wrote this book because this was something of a, of a labor of love. I've been writing it since '07, and when it came out, it was uh, number one in medicine and psychology on Amazon for a while, and I didn't expect any of that. It was something that was just I just wrote out of my soul, and so that was really nice. And that's the uh, four cornerstones of a lasting and caring relationship with your doctor? Right, called Bond, exactly. And so I, I was very pleased with that, and, and, and so that was a wonderful way to kind of uh, start the year. So tell me a little bit about the book. What what are the uh, the four cornerstones that you speak of in the book? 
So, Dr. Bill, this is something that, like I said, started really back for me in, in 2007. I finished training uh, at Columbia here in New York, and I went out west for a while and then came back. And I realized there were four things that were really important to make sure that patients were happy and even us um, were happy as far as a relationship. And the first one was actually trust. The second was respect. The third was empathy. And the other one was communication. And I recognized that if either one of them faltered, it made it for a relationship that wasn't as close or didn't have that bond that I think we really needed to have with our patients. And this is, this goes both ways, of course. I mean, the patient has to respect you. You have to respect the patient and uh, there has to be empathy for both the patient and for the doctor's role as taking care of you. I mean, that's important too. No, it is. I'm glad you said that because you're right. It goes both ways, especially when you get to the to the communication. That has to go both ways. Um, so you're right. It's it's a it's a partnership. It's just like that of a marriage. And so we have to kind of go back and forth and 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 give each other a, a little love back and forth. Absolutely. And you know, I tell people all the time uh, uh, that all relationships have the same basic elements of interaction. Some are a little more intimate. Some are more business. Some are more medical. But if you apply those same basic principles of, of relationship interaction to every relationship, then I think you'll be successful. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And that's even more important that these, you know, these times that we're living in medicine, right, where it's a little bit more volume-based and value-based. And I think patients kind of feel like they're getting squeezed a little bit. Well, I, I think that's probably true, but I'm seeing with the family practice residents at our hospital mm-hmm. that they're focusing more on handholding and forming relationships with the patients. I think there's probably a middle ground there because I tell them, look, you have to have empathy and, and good communication with your patients, but you got to learn the pathology too because that's what you're here to do. You're here to figure out what's wrong with them and treat them, not just hold their hand and chit-chat. Exactly. Diagnose and treat disease. And look, and you and I know, Dr. Bill, we've been in practice for a while. There's a way to intertwine both of those things together and make sure that everyone is happy in their relationship. It just takes practice. It takes time. And it also takes the will to want to really have a special practice or a special bond with your patient. Absolutely. And, you know, I think you have to have a passion for this. I mean, obviously, doctors do better than any other uh, profession. Uh, they do better than lawyers. They do better than accountants. And, and you know, we're pretty much guaranteed a six-figure income if we show up and we're sober and we're, we're not having sex with our patients and, we're, you know, we're not being idiots. And right. uh, there's not many professions in which you can do that. So I think it's important for us to put into practice all those things that you have talked about in your book and also figure out ways to merge both our need to diagnose and our need to relate to the patients what's wrong and how they can help themselves and how we can help them. No, you're absolutely right. It's a, you know, and it's funny you, you mentioned those things. You know, I feel so blessed every day to do what I do. I mean, I, honestly, Dr. Bill, I don't know what I'd do if I wasn't able to be in medicine and touch lives that way because it really is a blessing. And, and, and you're right. You have to feel it. Um, you have to, you have to, this has to be a part of you. And it starts that way very young to with the students that you're, that you're teaching at the, um, at the medical school now. Oh yeah. And I mean, if you don't have a passion for it, then it's really not for you because even if, even if the money's good, you're, you're not going to be happy. Uh, and I think that it's important to not only want to make a good living, but also to really enjoy and have a passion for what you do. 
Nope, that's very important. That way, you know, when, when you have the passion for your job and your work, it kind of doesn't feel like work. And so that's, the, that's yeah. the ultimate goal. Yeah, and then people say, why are you still working? And I say, well, I'm not. <laughs> you know, I'm, <laughs> oh, I love I'm that. having fun. It's an advocation. It's it's yeah. my hobby. Yeah. So yeah. I, I do this that. during the day, and in the evening I work on the house or ride my bicycle or whatever, but it's really not work. It's 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 fun. It's something that I enjoy doing, and I'm sure you do too. So, so, so where you've been traveling to, you've been all over the country. Are you speaking? Are you on radio shows? What have you been doing? Yeah, a little bit of, of all the above. I just um, returned about a month ago from Nice. Um, so I was in, I was in France for a, for a week or so, once again, kind of a, a conference there. And, um, I was on a couple of shows in Tampa. So I've been, I've been traveling a bit early this year, um, more so than, than typical. But once again, I, I love doing that because it allows me to, as I like to say, Dr. Bill, touch a lot, a uh, lot more souls that way, um, than I can kind of do in the four walls of my, of my, of my office. And so, um, and I think I'm going to be in Baltimore in, in a couple of days in Maryland. So I'm gonna I'm gonna stay busy. Good for you. So how's your practice going? Are you are you staying busy with the concierge, or do you have a partner that helps you when you're out of town? Uh, how does that work? You know, actually, I am a solo practitioner. I'm one of those guys. There's not many of us left, but I am a solo practitioner. Um, and yeah, I've been staying pretty busy with them. You know, my practice is different, Dr. Bill, in that I keep a uh, a very small set of patients, especially on the concierge side, in my travel. Um, and so, you know, and that's something that I, I enjoy, especially I still have patients out in Los Angeles, so that's always a good excuse um, to get to to the uh, to California, which I love. Um, and so I've been staying quite busy that way. And, and, and so I think that's the thing that makes me so happy. I'm able to kind of diversify a lot of what I do, right? I'm able to see patients in the office. I also uh, give my time and see patients at an assisted living facility at least once a week if I'm not traveling, Dr. Bill. And I love that as well because that's very rewarding to be in the dementia units and that sort of thing. Absolutely. And you know, it gives you an opportunity to put into practice all the uh, skills that you have, not only as a physician, but also when you're dealing with demented patients, you have to use a little veterinary medicine because you have to figure out what's going on, even if they're not able to communicate that to you. So uh, it, it is a challenge and it's fun. We, we do that too. We see a few patients in uh, medical psychiatry nursing home here in, in St. Petersburg probably has the largest population of medical psychiatric patients, I would guess, in the United States. It's a, wow, wow. an amazing place. I've seen everything, I've, things I would never have thought I would see, uh, uh, I, ha I have seen there. I mean, uh, uh, just unbelievable uh, Huntington's Korea. I don't think I had seen Huntington's Korea other than in medical school until I started working at this place, I've probably seen half a dozen. So it's, it's yeah, unique. Yeah. One of my and patients it, as we speak, absolutely. Dr. Bill, same diagnosis. You're right. And I didn't see it until I was in this facility either. So you hit the nail right on the head there. Yeah, absolutely. So what's going on with the flu this year? It doesn't look like we're having much of a season so far. Have you seen you know, much up in your area? You know, it's interesting. I think the whole thing is, is that we've been so fortunate in that the strain, or at least the predominant strain that's been circulating, is the H1N1 strain. And that tends to be much weaker than the H3N2 strain, which we saw last year. And we know how severe and significant that was. So you're right. It looks like 
We are forging through. We're not there yet. Don't forget that the flu does peak between December and February. So we're not out of the woods, but yes, I'd have to I'd have to agree with you there that we've been very fortunate. It's been a little more mild than it was last year. Yeah, and we encourage all of our flu patients to go out and cough on their friends and neighbors <laughs> so we can get some more business coming in. Is that, is that on, wrong? Guys, is that sure unethical? But uh, yeah, we haven't seen a whole lot of flu. We've seen some, but really people have not been that sick. And the hospitals down here in, in St. Pete have not been as busy this winter so far. So uh, I'm guessing that uh, not only is it a weaker strain, but I think we've done a good job of selling our vaccination program to the public. No, I think that's also a big important thing. One of the other things, Dr. Bill, I don't know if you recall, but my practice, while I'm Western trained like you, is very open to, to other alternatives of healing. And one of the things that my patients always talk about, they love the fact that there is a homeopathic remedy out there called Oscillococcinum. I don't know if you've heard about it, but the point is, is that there's good data behind it, um, been used for decades already. But the important thing, it decreases flu-like symptoms and also has been shown to decrease the severity and the duration. Um, and it's just over-the-counter. It's easy to take, safe for kids that are two years of age and older. So a lot of my patients like trying some things that don't necessarily require our prescription pads. So, you know, acylococcinum is something that a lot of folks in my practice talk about, along with other things such as uh, elderberry and that sort of thing. They, we, a lot of patients are loving and enjoy those sort of things. Now, what's in, the, uh, in, in this uh, homeopathic medication? So with homeopathy, it's interesting. We could have a whole show on that. So homeopathy is something that is supposed to use the body's own ability to fight its own, its own illnesses. And so it uses these infinitesimal um, amounts of, of chemicals that allow your immune system to actually fight it. Now, the word oscillococcinum is interesting because it comes from the name as far as uh, when they first were thinking about the flu. And this is hundreds of years ago. They were thinking that maybe the flu at the time was more of a coccyx, as you know, as kind of a circle or what have you. And then the oscillo part is the fact that they also thought it was uh, flagellated, everyone, which means that it would kind of flap in order to move or, or what have you. So, you know, there's some fascinating science behind it. Um, and the important thing is that, you know, it just works. It helps. Even my family, my kids, my twins, I don't know if you recall, uh, but I have twins. And even they know, should they come down with flu-like symptoms, yeah, they know to kind of go and get it. They're little micro pellets they put under the tongue. It tastes a little bit like sugar, so it was easy for them to take when they were younger. And uh, do, do you know if there's um, um, an active ingredient in it that uh, has uh, the effect, or is this a combination of, of uh, alkaloids that's in this plant, or you know, what, what, is the, uh, what is the science well, you know, it's, it's actually, as far as the active ingredient, it's called anise barberry. So it's, it's one of these long terms, long terms or what have you, uh, as far as the way it works best. But once again, it's so challenging, though, Dr. Bill, when you, when you think of some of, the, some of the things that are either whether this is a homeopathic or, as I mentioned, elderberry or butterbur, the studies are different, and to be honest, as far as when they come to the way we like to have the randomly controlled trials, those are the most important. But the point is, there's some things that we don't know necessarily how they work so well. Aspirin was like that for years as well. Well, that's true, and uh, there may come a time when there's enough uh, enough people involved that you could actually do a, 
double blind placebo controlled right. trial and and see but uh you know there's obviously something to over the counter medications and home remedies uh, at least to some of them a lot of them i think are are baloney but some are, yeah, are yeah. very effective and you know i was impressed with the zycam with the uh with the zinc uh, based formulas yeah. i don't know if you've used that but uh, that made sense to me it seems Absolutely. to help Absolutely, it does. And the only thing I caution patients about is just to make sure you have something on your stomach. I tend to have patients that have a little bit of, they can have some GI upset here and there, but you are absolutely right. There's some good science behind zinc as well. And, and something that, once again, that we can kind of bring into that, that armamentarium of what we can use uh, to get well, especially during the flu season. Yeah, you know, the, I had to laugh at uh, one of the, you know, you know, South Park, the, the cartoon. Sure, of course. Yeah, you know, I remember when they had the, uh, when the um, Indian tribe was going to buy the town and turn it into a casino and one of the Indian kids got sick. And so they, the, uh, the, the boys, the, uh, the, the fourth grade boys that are the stars of the show, they gave him their secret, uh, sacred remedy, which was uh, NyQuil and chicken soup and you know, <laughs> all this stuff. And, and the kid got better. <laughs> and so then the Indians decided not to take their town away from him. But, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of things that we can do over the counter and a lot of things that we can just do at home to take care of ourselves, make sure we keep our, our fluid volume up, especially if we're yeah. losing a lot of volume. And if you have the nausea, vomiting, diarrhea syndrome, chicken soup, broth bouillon, those sorts of things to keep the volume up. And just simple things can actually help you get over a lot of viruses quicker. No, they really can. And you hit the, you hit the nail on the head once again with as far as making sure, as I love to joke around with patients, making sure we stay tanked up um, during this time, this time of year when you can absolutely get dehydrated, whether it be insatiable losses such as sweating or whether it be from nausea, from the vomiting, I should say, actually, or the diarrhea. The other thing that we do know does not work here during the flu season is antibiotics. Um, because we know antibiotics have no role here, and that's something that's important that patients understand. Because I understand, Dr. Bill, patients love to leave with something in hand, especially when they feel crummy. Um, but in this case, antibiotics are not indicated, so I always make sure I drive that drive that as well. Yeah, and we do see uh, if we get patients early enough, we do we do give them Tamiflu, mm -hmm, which is mm -hmm. which is an antiviral. Uh, antibiotic it's not it doesn't kill bacteria it only kills for those of you out right. there it only kills the virus and it only kills a specific virus the influenza virus it doesn't kill cold viruses right. doesn't kill gi bug viruses rotoviruses epicornoviruses norwalk viruses all the viruses that you get on the cruise ships but it, it is specific for the influenza and we in our office do a nasal swab and we have a little uh, right. five, five minute spot test to see if you have the influenza and then if you do then we'll treat you for that however we ha do have to remember ken that some people get a secondary bacterial pneumonia so right right, need, right. and need to that follow up you're absolutely right, Dr. Bill, because that's the number one complication of the flu, right? Bacterial pneumonia, strep pneumonia in particular. Um, yeah. So you're right. Now, that's amenable to antibiotics. But once again, that's because that is a bacteria and no longer a virus, everyone. Yeah, and a lot of people uh, don't know that the great flu epidemic of 1919, 1920, people weren't dying necessarily from the flu. They were dying from H influenza bacterial pneumonia, which yep. was was a, a terrible, terrible uh, disease to have at that time because there were no antibiotics. 
And so, you know, there was a story of a woman who got on the subway in New York City uh, downtown. And by the time she got to Midtown, she got on the subway. She was feeling well, coughed a few times. By the time she got to Midtown, got to Times Square, she was dead. And so this this is something that can can kill you in a hurry uh, and hopefully you get in to see your doctor before you're that sick and we do have opportunities and abilities to treat not only the symptoms of the flu but also the actual influenza virus and the secondary complications like bacterial pneumonia so the, your doctor is your friend yeah, absolutely and as i always say you should feel like a member of your family as well and that's the important part whenever you're thinking of your doctor i want everyone out there to feel like they have that sort of relationship with their physician because i believe that it leads to improved healthcare outcomes as well and that's what we all want i agree you know we're selling ourselves because what we try to get patients to do requires that they believe in us and trust us Mm-hmm. And hopefully we do the right thing for them. Of course, it's it's an, it's a learning and ongoing process. Science is always changing. But I agree with you, Ken. If if we can't get people to buy into and believe in us and have faith in us and feel good about us, they're not going to do what they what, what what we instruct them to do and what they need to do to take care of themselves. And we see this all the time. You and I, I'm sure we do. Uh, we see people who cannot or have a hard time following the regimens we give them because they just don't trust what we're doing. Yep, that's right. And that's another reason why sometimes I, I joke about in the book when patients bring a lot of information from Dr. Google, the smartest doctor out there. Um, and lots of times I think, you know, I always love to kind of go and review that information with patients because I need to make sure I need to build a little bit of trust so they don't worry that we're missing something or that I'm not properly explaining something that they felt they had to, to kind of look up Dr. Google. So I love it when that information comes in because it allows another moment for us to get a little closer and, and discuss what's really at the heart of, of what's going on. How are you feeling? And yeah, and you know, and at times I find that they come in with information that does help me too. That yep. it expands my uh, my uh, differential diagnosis and helps me figure out if maybe I'm missing something. So mm-hmm. I certainly appreciate it. Uh, I just don't want them to think that the internet is the the best source for their final diagnostic workup and treatment it's part of the uh, part of the uh, of the armamentarium now but certainly you and I we have to still use our brains time may come when we won't be needed the computers will take over and the robots will take over but for now for better or for worse we're still in demand hopefully not in our lifetime (laughs) not in our lifetime we still got to make a living and uh, feel productive and useful and and whole and part of the whole process Right. You're right. And to your point, when we were talking at the beginning of our conversation, I think we'll have a job forever, Dr. Bill, because nothing replaces the human touch. Uh, I don't think there's any robot or AI that will ever be able to replace that. They may make them look, you know, human-like, but believe me, that human touch and that feel, um, yeah, it's irreplaceable. So I I think we're okay for for a while. Well, I do too. But, you know, I kind of like the idea of uh, being a, a part human part machine. I I know a lot of doctors don't like that idea, but you know, I would love to have a a chip implanted in my brain that would extend my, uh, my memory and my, my 
uh, mental functions and give me more brain power and ability. I think that would be a tremendous thing. And, you know, if you think about it, a lot of what we're doing now in medicine, uh, like the monoclonal antibodies and yeah. all these new medications that are coming out, I mean, really, we're, we're manipulating our bodies and our biochemistry in ways that yeah. were just unfathomable uh, a century ago. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not opposed to the intermarriage of our technology with our biology. I think it's a good thing. You know, I started on Amavig. Amavig is the monoclonal antibody for migraine headaches. Mm -hmm. And that is a godsend. That really is. Wow. I've been using that. Uh, have you have you seen that in your I, practice? Have you, you know, used I it? haven't. I haven't used that, but it's wonderful to hear you. Because, you know, we have a lot of patients that, that do have challenges with migraine. So it's wonderful to hear that, that what you've tried actually has been uh, efficacious for you. I'd love to hear that. Yeah, it's uh, the uh, generic is Arunamab. MAB is uh, for those of you in the audience. It's monoclonal antibody. So a lot of the monoclonal antibodies end in MAB, and Arunamab is a monoclonal antibody that blocks the uh, the little chemical protein that attaches to the lining of the brain and precipitates starts the migraine headache, and it blocks that from happening. And it, very, very few side effects, very little interaction with any other body mechanisms. Uh, probably the main thing is constipation. But unlike a lot of the other monoclonal antibodies, it, it, it's not something you have to be tested for to make sure you don't have TB or some other uh, disease that might flare up if you're on an antibody like this. So it's a really good drug. You take it once or twice a month. It's an injection. It's got a self-injector. And uh, if you have more than 15 migraines a month, if you have classic migraines, debilitating migraines where you have visual disturbance, nausea, uh, auditory or hearing problems, um, you know, severe one-sided headaches, and I've had all of this, uh, it, it, it's really a godsend. Now, it's not cheap, but they do have a program where they can help you out for the first year, and you have to, uh, you have to make the appropriate applications, as you know, Ken, you got to fill out all these forms because sure, the insurance sure. companies are going to deny you initially. But if you do all of that and get your doctor to contact the Amavig rep, they will um, help you get uh, your medication paid for for one year free. So there are some good programs, and a lot of the insurance companies will work with you and work with them to decrease the copay. It's not cheap. For us, it's about I think about eight hundred dollars a month for the copay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But like you said before, it's so worth it because it's a godsend. That that eight hundred dollars is nothing when you actually get your life back. Well, if you have the eight hundred dollars, my my baby sister can't afford it, so we're trying to get her uh, the uh, medication for free. And my mother, God bless her, she gave us her big brain, and along with it, all four of us have bad migraines. And you know, not to wake up with a headache. And I mean, I actually woke up with a headache almost every day of my life for wow. the past 30, 40 years since I had my neck injury. It, it's, it's unique. I mean, it's unbelievable. My neck still hurts from my neck injury, but I don't have the migraine. So it's a godsend. And I think that that's something that, uh, that you can share with your patients as well. It's not for everybody. It's not for every migraineur. Um, it's just for those with really severe headaches and those who are willing to give themselves in the injection. 
Yeah, and that's important. And we were talking about the monoclonals and some of those things as far as, like you're saying, it'd be great to, to have a chip to put in our brain at some point. You know, we're getting closer to that with personalized medicine and being able to have medicines that may be just tailored for us, just for us, the patient. Can you imagine that day and age? And so... Um, so I'm so glad you're, you're sharing this sort of this sort of information because you're right. Medicine is changing um, and going in the right direction. So it's very exciting times at this point. Yeah, I mean, we could get a, a Dr. Ken Red Cross chip put in and we could have all of your books and your shows. And oh, my anytime God. we want, we could just cue them up. Guys, you wouldn't want that, guys. I, I talk way too much as an only child. Believe me, you'd want to throw that chip away and incinerate it. <laughs> So let's see, you're talking about black elderberry extract, butterbur, basil. Oh, my goodness. It sounds like you're cooking something here. What is all this? I know, exactly. You know, it's funny. We're, in fact, we're just talking about it with headaches. Now, butterbur is something that, once again, is interesting. It has anti-inflammatory properties. It's something that can be used around the cold and flu sinus times. But there's also some pretty good data that butterbur can help with headaches. Now, Dr. Bill, probably not someone like yourself that's a, that's a true migraineur who really has um, some challenges with headaches, but those who have some mild headaches around the flu season, which um, can be quite common, something like butterbur has actually been shown to be beneficial. So it's something to think about. Once again, it doesn't necessarily require a prescription pad to get some healing and help. And where do you get Butterbird? Do you get that at uh, your health food store? Can you get it at the pharmacy or online, or how do you buy that? You know, I don't see Butterbird at most of the normal pharmacies. I usually see it at like a Whole Foods or, or a Sprouts if you're in that part of the country that has it. So usually a natural food store has Butterbird. Not to say like the CBS and so forth don't, but I usually don't see them in those sort of stores. And so when you go there, it's nice. They have a lot of people who are some who are already educated on some of the things. And um, so you can get them in some of those places. I'm guessing you could probably get it on Amazon too. They usually oh, have a lot of uh, a lot of uh, herbal remedies that you can purchase. You know what I found helpful, and I was I was really surprised. My wife bought uh, ginger tea. Now mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm not a big believer in and uh, herbal teas to put you to sleep or any of that. I've tried. Uh, you know, all the different things, rose hip and uh, chamomile and all that. None, none of those have ever worked for me. But you know what? I, I tried this ginger tea just, just on a lark, and it, it helps me get to sleep. Now, I don't know if that's just my brain anatomy or if that is something that is more universal. But uh, I, I was really surprised, and I'm not a big herbal guy. I mean, I, I think there's something to some of it, but most of it I think is just garbage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, ginger, luckily, we know there's some, once again, some good data as far as ginger. I, like you, it's interesting. I like, I mean, look, it's obviously great to get it in your diet if you can. Usually you don't get enough for you to really get any 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 great clinical benefit by taking it in orally. So I prefer um, to get ginger in actually through tea. Um, I do it sometimes when I'm a little under the weather. Again, you know, it, it's something that kind of opens up the sinuses in a sense as well and does possibly have some, some sort of antibacterial, antiviral properties also. Um, so I'm, I'm like you. I'm a big fan of, of ginger as well. Obviously, it's also great in foods as well, but I like it in a tea form. Yep. Well, Ken, I'm going to grab a cup of Joe, and I'll be right back. You're certainly welcome to stick around. I'm going to talk about the uh, right-to-life abortion debate, late-term abortions. I don't know if you're interested in that, but if you want to stick around and join me, I'll be right back. I'm Dr. Bill, your Radio MD.
With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. Lots of rain in the Pacific Northwest, but snow, that is unusual. About a foot has fallen in some places up there around Seattle and Portland. Hundreds of flights canceled in those two cities. Heavy snow drifts, major highways closed in eastern Washington. A Hawaii storm has prompted concern about severe surf and wind, too. Virginia's embattled lieutenant governor urging authorities to investigate twin sexual assault allegations made against him, but he is not heeding calls to resign, and it's unclear what's next for the once rising star of the state Democratic Party. Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax issued a statement yesterday repeating his strong denials that he ever sexually assaulted anyone. And South Korean officials have agreed to increase the amount of money they contribute to offset the cost of U.S. troops on their soil in a new deal today with Washington. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 727-384-6411. 727-384-6411. Hello, this is Dr. Bill Handelman for our good friends at Tampa Bay Imaging. TBI provides state-of-the-art MRI and CT scanning with the lowest radiation possible. Most insurance plans accepted and self-pay rates are very competitive. TBI is conveniently located in Tampa and St. Pete with evening and weekend appointments. So call TBI today or ask your doctor. In Tampa, call 813-386-3674. St. Pete, call 727-545-9674. Attention men under the age of 35. You know what really impresses the ladies? When a guy has a few drinks and later gets pulled over for buzz driving. That could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. There goes let's grab dinner and a movie. Oh, I know. You drive more carefully when you're buzzed. You've proven that hundreds of times. A woman admires that kind of confidence. And you've practiced how to speak if a cop does pull you over. Slowly, clearly, and politely like, good evening, officer. A woman admires that kind of foresight. And what woman doesn't find it adorable that you call it buzzed even though the law calls it drunk? You could kiss $10,000 goodbye, along with any chance of having a girlfriend. Because nothing says, I'm a catch, more than a guy who lives in his parents' basement and calls it my place. Buzzed, busted, and broke. Because buzz driving is drunk driving. A message from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. How many sales are you missing because you're not effectively using social media marketing? The vast majority of the population is on social media, shopping. We're Salem Surround. We take the mystery of digital marketing off your shoulders, letting you run your business while we deliver customers. There are no limitations on where you can reach customers with Salem Surround. Total market penetration for increased ROI. Learn more by logging on to surroundtampa.com. Surroundtampa.com. Here is your exclusive AccuWeather forecast. Today, mostly cloudy skies with a high at 81. Partly cloudy, mild tonight, low 64. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a high 82. And then for tomorrow night, partly cloudy, warm, low 69. Sun and some clouds, a couple of showers around on Tuesday with a daytime high Tuesday near 80. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Steve Williams for AM860, The Answer. 
to see Maybe it's got nothing to do with me Fathers be good to your daughters Daughters will love like you do Girls become lovers who turn into mothers So mothers be good to your daughters too And I'm back. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD, a little bit of John Mayall singing about his daughter, his children, who are not his own. We are on AM 860, The Answer, and I'm Dr. Bill, your radio MD. We're at 877-969-8600, 877-969-8600. And we're talking with Dr. Ken Redcross. I was going to switch topics. I don't know if Ken stayed on for the show or not. Is he with us? Yeah, yeah, I was here with you, Doctor Bill. Oh, good. Um, you know, I, I, I was. Well, I should say at the lunch table, the doctor's lunchroom. It's been stirred up again. This whole thing about late-term abortion and uh, Northup, and uh, he came back into the uh, into the limelight because of apparent racial uh, improprieties when he was a, a medical student. I, I don't know if you're following this or not, Ken, and, and what your feelings are on all of that. Uh, but he also stepped into the abortion debate again. Yeah, see, that I didn't I didn't know anything about that, Dr. Bill, until you mentioned it this morning, actually. So I think uh, with all my travel, I'm a little behind in the news, so I did not know that. Well, that's all right. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, it's. It's something that we can now talk about, and it'll be de novo for you, so we'll, we'll get your honest reactions. Now, the guy is a pediatric neurosurgeon who morphed into politics, and I don't have a problem with a doctor going into politics. Now, a pediatric neurosurgeon talking about right to life, I'm, I'm a little <laughs> I mean, you know, surgeons are there to cut and sew and uh, – I don't think they have quite the same sensitivities that you and I or a pediatrician or a psychiatrist would have, Ken, but uh, he has stepped into it and made some statements about uh, late-term abortion, allowing children to, to infants to die when they're born if they uh, have severe genetic or congenital problems or if they are unable to sustain life on their own. And... Uh, so it brings into account, again, the whole idea of late-term abortion, uh, which is always, uh, or in, in recent years, has always been coming up on the left, and I don't, I don't know what your politics are, but uh, I've had some thoughts about this, and you can tell me what you think. I think that, uh, that first of all, we have to stop and think about what is right to life and when does life begin, and, and uh, is life something that starts at the moment of conception. Now, I think it goes back further than that, but uh, is the ability to sustain life, to divide, uh, to live within the environment that we're, we're placed in, uh, to continue to grow, to, uh, uh, to change, to morph, to evolve, all these things that we think are parts of life uh, or aspects of being alive, are, are these present at conception. I think those those are the important questions that we have to ask ourselves when we start talking about life and whether or not uh, an infant, a fetus, an embryo, 
a gamete, a zygote, whether these are actually living organisms. And I don't know what you think about that, Ken. I don't know if that's something that has come into your consciousness. Well, you know, it's interesting for me, Dr. Bill, because to to your point, it's, you know, everyone I'm seeing, I'm not, I'm not seeing children. I'm not, you know, I'm seeing mainly adults. And this is, this is something that is such, um, obviously to, to say controversial isn't even giving it the, the correct word um, to when everyone's belief is as far as when when life actually begins and and so you know it's weird for me because I'm one of those I'm one of those guys out there who's an independent I don't um I'm just kind of open I I'm 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 kind of a throwback and I just want everyone happy um Dr. Bill when it when it comes to this this sort of thing but you know I, I think it also depends on whether we're looking directly at the science as to when life actually begins, and then there's also these other circumstances that are that are at play as far as real people are affected um, by by having the child or, or making a decision for them. And so, you know, it's very very challenging to, to figure out without at least for us because look, at the end of the day, we're physicians, but we're also scientists. Um, and so, you know, I think some of that information would be, be good to to kind of talk through, go and really help to to settle some of this debate. Yeah, I think so. But you you bring up a good point. Uh, uh, what is the desire of that uh, entity, that living being, whether you call it a human or whether you call it a gamete, a zygote, a fetus, or whatever? Mm-hmm. Uh, and why do we have living wills and durable powers of attorney for adults and, as you say, as you know, for demented patients who fill these things out in advance? Uh, uh, do we should we, do we, should we have the same types of of uh, advocacies for unborn infants and for neonates? Uh, and, uh, you know, how do we know what the desires of a fetus and an embryo are? I mean, we know that everything has, I mean, even stars, even rocks, even, everything seems to want to hold on to its existence. Everything resists being destroyed and so if there is within nature some basic law or desire or a god factor or whatever you want to call it something Mm -hmm. that that binds us together whether it's the forces between uh, higgs boson particles or the atomic uh, the the nuclear atom uh, the the forces that hold that together everything seems to be to want to stick together and to form something so uh, is is an unborn infant is an is a fetus is an embryo is that any different than any other aspect of science and and I think that's the question that I ask uh, mm-hmm. when I when I approach this. So you have to deal with this, and and um, have you had to deal with this? And I guess throughout the years, um, have you had to deal with this sort of thing with with patients who have come to you to to get your to your counsel or your input or anything like that? Occasionally, yes, I have, and I also had a family member. Now, she had some major psychiatric problems, mm-hmm. and uh, although I am uh, fundamentally opposed to abortion, I, I did take her to get an abortion, and, I, and I, you know, I thought that at that time it was, and I still think that it was the right thing to do. I think that she would have had, uh, th- that it would have been 
an impossible situation given the circumstances at that time. Now, whether that was morally right or wrong, I don't know. But situationally, as a young physician, mm -hmm. I thought that uh, this would be in the best interest of all of society and of both the 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 the, the family member and the unborn infant. Now, whether I was right or wrong, I don't know. But uh, it's done. It's it's. 50, 60 years ago. It's a long right, time right. ago. And, and, uh, and I was raised Catholic, so I'm, I have some strong feelings about abortion, not that I necessarily believe in the tenets of Catholicism or Jesus mm -hmm. as God or any of that, but I do think that uh, the morals and values of Catholicism are worth hanging on to, and I, I do think that we have to treat life with a great deal of respect. And, and you know, you, you, you got to wonder, the, the people on the left— um, who were also the green people and the save the planet people and the uh, save the little birdies. I mean, uh, a bird egg is is uh, sacred. Um, a reptile egg is sacred. Every everything is sacred. So why not a human egg? That's I, I, I guess that's what I would would come down to uh, the the analogy that I would bring into it from that point of view. Mm -hmm. And you know, so it's interesting is your your um, your perspective as far as in, in practice, and like you said, from the years that you've practiced. Because in my kind of generation, you know, especially through my throughout my career, that's when a lot of um, you know a lot of referring out for everything starts to happen, right? When you were starting practice, you guys did it all. Um, and one of the things that would happen if patients came to me and there were some of these challenges and they were trying to figure things out. That would be a discussion that lots of times that the OBGYN would have with them and have a little bit of a deeper discussion and figure that out a little bit more so than in practice. Because I can tell you, Dr. Bill, I cannot remember at least a, a case in my career. I've been in practice almost uh, almost 20 years now, um, and I haven't had a haven't had a specific case kind of like yours where I've had to to really sit down and, and, and share and listen and, and really um, put a lot of thought into, gosh, you know, which, di which direction um, should we go here? Where, where are we? Your, you know, the patient situations, where, where are we as far as the child's health? So, you know, it is a very uh, important issue and, a, and very complex. Yeah, it is. And I, uh, I, I fully understand that if, uh, if a, an infant, a fetus is going to be so deformed that it's not going to be able to sustain life or, you know, it's anencephalic, it doesn't have a brain, um, that, uh, that there's probably a, a good argument for, for not, for not, uh, not delivering that child to, to have a, a medical abortion. And, um, I have a lot of OBGYN friends at the lunch table. Almost all of them are, uh, are, Catholics or Christians, mm -hmm. and they're very uh, they're very pro-life and anti-abortion. Although occasionally there is a medical reason for it to save the mother or to uh, prevent uh, a disastrous uh, life for an infant. And a lot of a lot of these uh, kids that have severe brain damage when they're born end up in uh, in nursing homes or uh, state facilities and. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's it makes for jobs. I mean, it, it gives it gives the lower income workers something to do to care for them. But uh, whether or not that's a, a great life, I don't know. It doesn't look all that great to me. Right. And, and I would think, well, if I had my druthers, I'd probably not want to exist. But again, how do we know what the desires are? I mean, every all life 
longs for itself. Everything wants to live. So, um, and as growing up Catholic, there were a lot of women in their forties who had, uh, uh, down syndrome babies and they just loved them. They doted on them. And I've seen a number of downs kids throughout my uh, career as adults, adult downs. And we've kept some of them alive into their sixties and the families mm-hmm. just love them. Uh, they're nice kids, they're nice adults, and uh, of course they have a lot of medical problems as they get older, but they seem to be loving and they seem to bring a lot of comfort to to the mothers. So, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not a woman, I'm not a mother, and I'm not sure that I would want to raise a Downs kid and care for him all of his life. It would certainly be a big challenge, but there are people that like that. Mm-hmm, they're, mm-hmm. they're, yeah, and then we'll adopt them, too. Right, right, right. So, you know, that gets back once again to the complexity of life. And, you know, what's interesting for, for me, like I said, is, you know, I'm kind of, um, I'm not pro anything, life or choice. I'm just pro happiness. And I want us all to figure out how everyone can be happy with a, with a, a way that makes sense that makes sense, whether it's based in science, which is where you know you and I like to live, or, or whether it's based on which, whichever the other side feels. But, you know, I, I think it's always important for us to have these, these discussions. And to your point, who knows if what we decide to do is right or wrong at the moment, but we can at least try to, to learn along the way. And I think listen to each other as well, instead of make it so much of a of a fight. Um, I think it needs to be based in, in a little bit of science. And once again, and just everyone just wanted to be happy and figure this thing out. Yeah. My sister, uh, my baby sister worked in neonatal ICU and I think towards the end of her career, she was pretty burnt out. And you know, she mm-hmm. said, I don't know why we're doing this, Billy. We're just saving, uh, little monsters and they end up with you know, brain problems and visual problems and all that. But, but then again, one of my friends was a neonate, uh, a preemie and was on the vent and all that. And he's got visual problems, but he actually was a pretty bright guy. And he became a gastroenterologist. Wow. Uh, wow. So, Look at that story. So where do you, um, you know, who, who makes the decision? How do we know what the outcome will be? Of course we can, you know, predict with, with a certain amount of scientific accuracy that, uh, that lower income, uh, less educated are going to have more problems, uh, than the upper income, more educated, uh, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. But still, how do you decide who we should save and who we should not save and whose decision should it be? Should it be just the parents or, or do we hold like Khalil Gibran? who says that our children are not our own. They're the product of life's longing for itself or John Mayall, who says, you know, my daughter's not my own. Uh, These are beings that exist with or without uh, our direct intervention. I mean, obviously as infants, they don't, they need our direct intervention, but Mm -hmm. uh, where, where does the, where do I end and my son's life, begins. What is the separation? I mean, obviously I love my children and hug them and kiss them, but they are their own people and they have been since birth. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the first time I tried to change a diaper on my son, he kicked me in the face and laughed. (laughs) 
<laughs> but you can't <laughs> kick you. My my son did something else. So we will we yeah, say that on the air. <laughs> um, but the point is, I know it well. Doctor Brown, I have twins, so I got it um, both ways. So I you got it. it both ways. So I got to tell you the story now. My son was uh, he was uh, in trouble when he was born. He was a big baby, and he had some respiratory distress. Ended up in the neonatal ICU. And, you know, I thought, oh, they don't really know what they're doing. They're newborns. They don't have any uh, sense or purpose or anything. He pulled out every IV. He pulled out every NG tube. Wow. He pulled out every line. And he would he would get his little hands and just work and work and work till he got a finger underneath a, an NG tube and yeah. yanked that thing out. We were starting an IV on him. There were three of us. There was the nurse. There was another nurse who was holding his his body, and I was um, holding something else. I can't remember who was holding what. Right. And you know what? He had a free hand. She got that IV, and he, within a millisecond, reached over and snatched that right out. So oh you can't tell me that they don't have some sense of consciousness and some sense of a desire to survive because obviously it hurt, and he didn't like it, and he wanted it gone because it was a threat to him. So. You, you know, you you got to wonder if maybe there is some sentience to even uh, a single-celled organism. I mean, well, there, I'm there sure has he's to still be a strong-willed kid. I'm sure, right? Yeah, and I, and maybe they all are. Maybe they all have some uh, in, innate sense of survival and desire to live. Now, that's not that's not the anencephalics and the severely brain damaged and uh, the kids that are not going to survive without some active intervention. And then I can see there that there might be uh, an argument to say, well, if the child is not viable, if the child can't sustain life on its own, uh, who makes the decision whether or not to to resuscitate them, to intubate them, to keep them on life support until you can figure out how to help them. And, and we also have to consider as medicine evolves and the technology gets better and we're able to save people that we couldn't save before and to change lives like migraine headaches. I mean, right, who, right. On, who on earth? I mean, how would you decide uh, uh, who is going to be salvageable in the future and do we give up? Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that uh, the classic example is an old surgeon friend uh, when I was in training back in the 70s, he said, uh, Bill, I had a patient back in the 30s when I was a young doctor who had uh, B12 deficiency, vitamin B12 is necessary for the, sus the s sustaining of life and of neurological functions. And sure. before we knew that B12 was the problem with pernicious anemia, people got blood transfusions. That's how they got B12. Nobody knew what it was that was what, that was sustaining them, but they just thought, well, they're anemic. We'll give them some uh, blood transfusions, and, and of course, they did better. And this guy had, this patient of his had had uh, the symptoms for decades and the neuropathies and the dementia and all the problems, the GI problems, stomach problems. And he finally said, you know what, I'm giving up. I'm not getting any more transfusions. He died two weeks later. Uh, they made the announcement that B12 was the answer, and now we know that we can treat uh, B12 deficiency quite easily with an injection once every three or four weeks. So, wow. Where do you start? Where do you stop? These are the big questions, and they're the questions that you and I, as doctors, have to have to think about and address and discuss. Even if we do refer out, because people are going to come to us and say, 
well, my OB says that there's a possibility that if the baby's born that we can do this, this, and this. What do you think? Well, of course, you have to do a little studying, but you also sure, have to, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you have to also have some idea about how to counsel people when they come in and they're hurting. And uh, I think that goes back to your book. Yeah, back to those those four cornerstones that's so important, especially when you're talking about a topic like this. They You, you better make sure that they feel that there's trust and, and obviously empathy um, for, for this particular situation. And so there really isn't anything that I think we deal with, Dr. Bill, and, and what you and I do where, from, from my opinion, in my opinion, I should say rather that those four cornerstones aren't important or the most important, so the foundation of a good relationship. Absolutely, and it's uh, so important that we maintain communication that we also remind people that the technology is getting better and not to give up hope. Um, you never know, and I tell people that all the time when they have cancer. Don't give up because there may be a monoclonal antibody that right. comes out tomorrow that will help you with, with your your cancer. Well, we got to go, Ken. It's been great right. again. Come back and join me. I am Dr. Bill, your Radio MD, and I'll see you guys next Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.